This Parsha podcast is dedicated by Boris and Diana Poperny on the occasion of their 12th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary from the entire Parsha podcast family. And they dedicate it as well in the merit of a speedy recovery for Allah Batraya from her health problems. May she merit a complete and speedy and total recovery. This is the penultimate Parsha podcast episode of year seven. Would you believe it? We're about to wrap up year seven of the Parsha podcast. What an incredible accomplishment. I'm so excited and proud, really, of what we've done together. And as the kids like to say, I'm psyched for year eight. What an immense privilege. What a cherished opportunity that we get to gather together each week and study the Almighty's Torah. How fortunate are we? And we're getting close to the end. This parsha, the entire parsha is the events that happened on the final day of Moshe's life. And the bulk of the parsha is the song of Ha'azinu, this song that surveys all of Jewish history, the past, the present, the future, Messiah. It's an absolute masterpiece. How the Torah is able to have such prescience and be so clairvoyant about knowing the future. There's a comment by Ramban towards the end of the song where he says that if this song was told us by some stargazer, by some guru, by some clairvoyant individual able to see the stars and be able to interpret their meanings, we would be wowed and amazed by how accurate, how prescient this song is. But of course, it comes from the Almighty, and therefore it should come as no surprise that this song of Jewish history is stunningly accurate. So of course, that occupies the bulk of the Parsha, but I want to focus today on this penultimate episode of year seven, I want to focus on a set of verses, verses 46 and 47 of chapter 32, after Moshe finishes the song of Ha'azinu. So verse 45, the verse tells us that Moshe finished telling all these words to all of Israel. And then before Moshe is instructed to ascend the mountain where he is to die, in between, we have these two very interesting verses that talk about Torah and how we have to relate to it. And we get some very interesting definitions of what Torah is all about. And I think it's a valuable study. Now we're getting close to the end of the Torah cycle. And please God, we will embark on a new cycle of the Torah, year eight of the Parsha podcast for us. And we have these two verses. It's a micro-message from Moshe where he gives us insight into what Torah is all about and what it can do for us and how it can transform our lives, it's a worthwhile study. So chapter 32, verse 46 reads, Vayomer Elihem, Moshe tells the Jewish people, pay attention to all the words that I am testifying before you today and instruct it to your children and guard and observe all the words of this Torah Verse 47, because it's not an empty thing from you. I'm just giving the translation. We'll get to the commentary, what this actually means. It's not empty. It's not vacuous. Rather, it's your life. And through this, you will endure. You'll have long days upon the land that you are now crossing the Jordan 
to inherit it. Moshe is telling the nation to pay very careful attention. It's not empty. What I'm telling you is not empty. It's life. And in the Rashi commentary, we find some very interesting insights that he shares. Pay attention, says Rashi. A person has to have their eyes and their heart and their ears aligned to hear words of Torah. Moshe is telling the nation, pay attention, listen very carefully. You have to have full concentration to understand the words of the Torah. And Rashi brings an analogy from God's instruction to Ezekiel. The final chapters of Ezekiel are the are the detailed schematics of the temple. And before it starts, this is in chapter 40 of the book of Ezekiel, God tells him, pay attention very carefully. Your heart, focus, your eyes, your ears, pay very careful attention. And Rashi tells us, God is about to reveal to Ezekiel the measurements of the temple. And that's something which is, you know, it's, it's physical. You could see it. You could measure it. But the words of Torah, they are like mountains balancing precariously on a strand of hair. If for the schematics of the temple, you have to pay very careful attention, Torah, which is so nuanced, which is so subtle, which is so precise, which is so intricate, it's much more complex than the measurements of the temple, most certainly you better pay very careful attention if you want to understand it. And the verse continues, it's not empty. It's not needless. Your toil is not for naught, Rashi tells us. There's a lot of reward because this determines your life. Your life is determined by Torah. And then Rashi continues, and this is going to be what we're going to focus on, at least initially here. Rashi offers an alternative interpretation as to what the verse means when it says, it is not empty. There's nothing in Torah that is empty. There's nothing in the Torah that doesn't have layers of insight that you can glean if you study it and plumb its depths. And he brings an example. You have a verse in the Torah that you and I may look at it and say, well, it doesn't really resonate. It doesn't jump off the page. It doesn't really have any insight. There's no, there's no secret here that I can understand. It just seems to be kind of humdrum. It just, it's like verses. It's telling over chronicles or there's stories or there's uh, different uh, uh, map delineations, you know, different cities, different names of people, families, tribes, chieftains. That doesn't really jump off the page. doesn't really get our attention. We don't ascribe to that a lot of value. And he gives us an example. Chapter 36 of Genesis. We have a whole chapter delineating the families and the descendants and the chieftains of Asaph. And it tells us that a woman named Timnah married Asaph's son, Eliphaz. And it tells us that this Timnah woman, she was the sister of a gentleman named Lotan. Now, most of us don't remember that, that verse. That, that, that verse is not quite, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. That's not Shema Yisrael, hero Israel. Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. That's not one of those verses that we remember. It's not 
an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's not one of those verses that we would necessarily think about, you know, after this whole incredible experience of studying the Torah together. That's not one of the ones that stick with us. That there's this woman named Timna, and her her brother is a guy named Lotan, and she marries Aliphaz, and they bear a son named Amalek. That word actually does jump out at us. But why is it so important? Or this is what someone could ask. Why is it so important to be told of the family, the history, the background of, of Timna and Lotan? That's an example, Rashi tells us, of what someone may say. Well, these verses are kind of empty. They don't really have a lot of meaning and substance to them. But actually, they do. Because this woman, even though she was the sister of Lotan, and Lotan was a, a chieftain, so she was from a family of royalty. And she wanted to go intermarry amongst the family of Abraham. She sensed, she understood, she perceived the value of this family. And she went to Abraham and says, I want to join your family. And Abraham says, no, no, you're, you're not a good candidate. So she went to Isaac and he also rejected her. And then she went to Jacob and he rejected her as well. And she said, well, if I cannot join the better part, so to speak, of this family, I'll go to the other side. She went to Asav. And Asav said, well, there's no, there's no spots for you. But my son Eliphaz, he, he could use a backup wife, a concubine. And she said, I would rather be a concubine by the other part of Abraham's family than to be a princess, to be part of the Lotan dynasty. And thus, this little bit of genealogy, it's telling us something very powerful about Abraham, that Abraham had such an impact upon the world that even the rulers and the kings and the chieftains and the heads of state, they all desired and coveted to intermarry with him and to cleave to his descendants. This is an example of a verse that we may say is empty, doesn't really have much of a lesson for us, doesn't pack a punch. But actually, Rashi tells us this is an example of our mistake that we may make. We may think it's empty, but really it isn't. And that's the lesson Rashi tells us that Moses is trying to convey to the nation. Torah has no empty calories. There's no extra fat. There's no throwaway verses. There's no sections that you can ignore because, well, there's nothing really there for me. Even this seemingly irrelevant verse about the sister of Lotan, who's Timna, even that is replete with insight. I think this is a very valuable lesson for us as we approach the conclusion of this cycle of the Torah, of course, of the Parsha podcast. The Torah is effectively infinite. And it's multidimensional. And there's deeper and deeper layers of understanding. And as it is tells us that there are 70 facets of the Torah. And there are 50 gates of insight. And we mentioned this in the past. There's a book that uh, we still have with 252 different essays explaining just one set of verses. 
And then we have the thousand interpretations on the small Aleph in the first word of Vayikra, the first word of the book of Leviticus. In the the Torah scroll, there's a smaller font for the Aleph. And there are a thousand interpretations offered by the commentaries. And I think this is a nice lesson to remember. You know, every year we try to do a little bit of a different study of the Torah, explore different angles, try to see it on a different dimension, try to take a different approach, examine a different facet. Why? We study the Torah. We did already seven cycles. Here, we discover the answer. There's nothing empty in it. Everything is purposeful. Everything is insightful. Everything is valuable. Every letter of Torah is bursting with meaning. And yes, we're exploring it on our relatively shallow level, but we still get some sneak peeks into the substrate of Torah. We try to take a little a little peek behind the scenes. The school year that just started, I began teaching just a couple of times a week in one of the local Jewish high schools. And we're going through the 13 principles of faith. Of course, I'm sure all of y'all are listening to the Torah 101 podcast that I host. And we've spent 60 plus episodes on the 13 principles of faith. But I thought that was a very valuable study maybe to do with these uh, with these high schoolers. So I actually decided to start with principle number eight of the 13 principles, which of course is the divinity of the Torah. And this subject that Rashi is telling us, it came up in, in one of the early classes. You know, the Rambam, when he codifies this principle of faith, he stresses that the author of the Torah is the Almighty. We don't believe that Moshe is the author. We believe that Moshe had no editorial oversight. He had no license to add or subtract any part of the Torah. He simply wrote down verbatim what God told him to write. He's just the scribe. He's the stenographer, but God is the author. And then he brings some examples. This jumped out at me. He says, well, you cannot say that Moshe just added some filler information. And yes, maybe the verses of the Ten Commandments and of the Shema, that is authored by God. But all the, you know, the family chronicles of the, the sons of Ham, of Ham, the son of, of, of Noah, or Timna, Timna, the concubine of Aliphaz, he brings the same example that Rashi brings. It's all from God. And then he says the worst type of heretic is someone who believes in the divinity of some verses, but not others. And then he adds, there is depth and multidimensionality in the Torah, and there's value in every verse, and there's unfathomable depth in every word. And it's as broad as the land and as deep as the sea, And everything has wonders and and wisdom to those who understand it. And if you don't understand something, you should follow the example set by King David. And he quotes Psalms 119, where he prayed, David prayed, 
uncover my eyes so I can witness, so that I can gaze upon the wonders of your Torah. This is the idea that Rashi is conveying to us. This is what Moshe is telling us. There's nothing empty. There's nothing vacuous in the Torah. It's all life. It's all from God. And it's all effectively infinite. It's broader than the land and deeper than the sea. And you read parts of the Torah. You read verses in the Torah. And your eyes kind of glaze over. You should know it's not empty. You may not have the tools to understand it. And you have to follow David as he demonstrated for us. You have to pray to have your eyes uncovered to be able to see and to appreciate the beauty and the unfathomable genius of Torah. And I furnished an analogy. If someone goes to Venice Beach and they decide to walk into the Pacific Ocean and the water reaches their ankles and they think, well, I could walk all the way to Asia. If I just had enough provisions, I can make it there. But of course, you walk in a little bit deeper and suddenly the water is by your, your knees and then your thighs and then it's by your chest and then it's a thousand feet deep. Torah is aptly compared to the ocean. When you start, you begin your foray, maybe you're one of the Parsha podcasts, you think, well, I kind of got a grasp on this. And then over the course of your study and your immersion in Torah, you realize just how deep it actually is. And at the end of the Torah, we're about to finish one cycle. And right away, we begin anew. It's a very valuable lesson to remember every year. We're inching a bit deeper, so to speak, into the ocean of Torah. And we're discovering more and more about this cherished gift that the Almighty gave us. And Moshe is telling us, pay attention. Align your, your eyes and your ears and your heart. There's nothing empty here. There's no filler material. There's nothing that's bereft of meaning. You have to know, of course, how to study it. And you need to pray. But there's nothing vacuous in Torah. Now, I want to explore some of the ideas, some of the themes that our sages share about this verse. Because I think it will help us appreciate Torah and what it does for us, especially as we are about to embark on year eight of the Parsha podcast. We'll start off with something exotic. Listen to this. If you ever have the great privilege of looking at a Torah scroll, you'll notice that it's written with black ink upon white parchment. And the Talmud tells us that the Torah preceded the world, but it existed in a different format. It existed as black fire atop of white fire. And that is symbolized, so to speak, by the, the black ink on top of the white parchment. The Gona Vilna says something unbelievable. This may be more relevant to our study next year, because next year we're going to try to go a little bit deeper. Behind the scenes, beneath the veneer, to try to explore the subtext of the Torah. The Gona Vilna says, 
There's nothing empty in the Torah. Even things that look empty, like that white parchment, and the paragraph breaks between different sections in the Torah, even that is replete with secrets. And he tells us, as an example, the 12 paragraph breaks featured in Parsha's Vayechi correspond to the dialogue between Jacob and his sons. He said the Shema. They said the prayer of Baruch Shem, 12 words in total, even what is literally empty is not empty. It's full of meaning. That's just an exotic idea. There's an amazing comment on this verse, verse 47 of our parsha, from the Talmud. It's not empty. The words of Torah are not empty. And if it is, if you find a verse of Torah that is empty, that does seem to be bereft of meaning, it's empty from you. It's not empty. Torah, no part of Torah is vacuous. And if it is, you have to know that it is empty from you, meaning that if you ascribe emptiness, vacuousness, lack of meaning, lack of salience, lack of value to a part of Torah, actually that's just a revelation that the emptiness is within you. This is quite a humbling statement in the Talmud. And it's a very valuable one for us. What is the proper attitude that a person should have when they encounter a part of Torah that they don't understand? You read a piece of Torah and you, you find it to be empty. This verse, the Talmud tells us, it reminds us to have a dose of humility. It's a very sharp point here. What are we doing with Torah? How do we overlay Torah over our existing or pre-existing, predetermined mindset? Are we trying to fit Torah into our predetermined perspective? Are we trying to make Torah compatible? with our pre-existing worldview? Are we twisting and contorting Torah and making it conform to us, to what we believe? And if we find it irreconcilable, do we pull out, God forbid, a stalpel and remove the part of Torah that we find to be empty? Of course, there's no greater insult to Torah than to try to demand that it conform to us, that it be compatible with us. And the Talmud tells us, no, you have it backwards. If you don't understand something in Torah, if you think it's empty, it is you who is actually empty. We don't ascribe the flaw to Torah, rather to ourselves. And of course, this is very humbling. No one wants to ruminate upon the fact that they or in some dimension, they are empty. They're flawed. But of course, 
There's nothing wrong with being flawed. All humans are. And in fact, that is precisely what the Torah is coming to remedy. And therefore, we have an attitude here being professed by the Talmud of how we're supposed to relate to Torah. It's there to help fix us. It's there to help elevate us. It's there to help transform us. And there's nothing empty about it. We may be lacking. We may be flawed. We may be empty. But Torah is never empty. And it can transform us. But we have to listen very carefully. We have to align our our ears, our eyes, our heart, because we may be empty. And if we assume that the emptiness is in the Torah, it's actually the other way around. There is emptiness in us, and Torah can help us fix this. And of course, no one wants to admit that they may be flawed. But Moshe is telling us, we're nearing the end of the Torah, and there's nothing empty in it. And it's very helpful for us to know that we have something that can elevate us, that can transform us. And this, of course, is a very powerful lesson. Moshe is reminding the nation, there's nothing empty in it. And if there is something empty in it, actually, no, you have it backwards. The emptiness is in you. And the Torah can help remedy that. My grandfather, a blessed memory, took this Talmud and applied it in a, in a very deep way. We talk a lot about how every one of us is entrusted with a mission. We have something we need to do. The Almighty put us here to do something specific. And each one of us is a one of one. We're completely unique. And thus, there isn't a universal cookie-cutter formula for a person to achieve their mission. And how do you discover your mission? That, of course, is the vexing question. How do you find out what precisely the Almighty wants of you? Here's an answer. The Talmud tells us, again, the, the verse says, there's nothing empty in Torah. And the Talmud explains, and if there is, if you find something empty in Torah, actually, no. That's not a reflection on Torah. It's a reflection on you. What that means is that if you're studying Torah and you find a verse that you think it's empty and you see no value in it and you see no imperative for it, now you've been told where your flaws that you need to remedy your mission that you need to undertake, embark upon, and complete, you know where it is, or you know at least part of it. You've discovered a point of emptiness within you. There's something here that you need to to address. And thus, by surveying Torah and studying Torah and finding the areas that we don't connect with, and we find it to be empty, we have now discovered an area of our life that we need to upgrade, that we need to fill, 
We found a point of vacuousness within ourselves. And now we know a little bit more about our mission. For some people, the emotional parts of the Torah don't speak to them. They like the law. They like the things that are more rigid and structured. And you get to stories, you get to lessons, you get to philosophy. And they say, that's empty for me. And their urge is to skip it. And the truth is, the opposite is the ideal approach. Because now you've discovered a point of emptiness within yourself. And now you have a mission to go fill that void, fill that vacuousness. There's a powerful insight here. We're always looking for a solution to our existential dilemma. What am I here to do? What does the Almighty want of me? Of course, every Jew has to keep all 613 missiles. We know that on a general level. But specifically, me, what do I, what do I need to do? The Torah can provide an answer. The Torah can provide direction. And specifically, the areas of Torah that don't speak to me, that don't resonate, that don't envelop me, that don't capture my imagination, and I want to just avoid them. I want to skip them. I want to find something else. There is a principle featured in the Talmud that when you find a point of emptiness in the Torah, you're actually discovering a point of emptiness not in the Torah, but in yourself. And that can be very illuminating if what you want is to achieve fullness, is to achieve a degree of perfection, is to achieve something which is needed for your mission, something that they might want of you. And that is a powerful insight featured in the writings of my grandfather based upon our verse. Each one of us has a different soul. Each one of us has a different mission. Each one of us is lacking in a different area. And that's why we all have a different mission. One of the ways to find out what you're lacking is to find what parts of Torah don't speak to you and make a great emphasis on engaging specifically with that. And that will help you fill up your emptiness and your vacuousness. I want to share one more beautiful insight that I saw in the writings of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, a blessed memory. He says that the example that Rashi brought, we have this uh, Timna woman, and she wants to intermarry with the family of Abraham. And she ends up as the concubine of Eliphaz, son of Esav, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. And that's supposed to be a great lesson to this notion that there's no empty verses in the Torah. But what exactly is the lesson? Yes, it gives us some of the backstory of this Timna figure and how she really wanted to intermarry amongst the family of Abraham. But how does this prove the point 
that every verse in the Torah is, or every part of the Torah is full and not empty. So he says, he says something very, very deep, very profound. Abraham, he emerges in a world that is very antithetical to the ideals that he preaches, that he develops, that he perpetuates to his descendants. And thus, Abraham is living in a world where he's this almost this oasis, this island of monotheism, of righteousness, of kindness, of dedication and sacrifice to God amidst a sea of paganism. He's just a stone's throw from Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's to deal with people who are after him, want to kill him because he is challenging their beliefs and he's, he's threatening really their control. He's threatening the establishment. And someone may say, well, Abraham, as we know, he studied Torah even before it was given. We did a podcast about that about a year and a half ago. So Abraham is, is, is doing all this Torah and we, we don't see the impact. And maybe you could say, well, Abraham, he, he's doing the right thing and he's studying Torah and he has this relationship with the Almighty. But we don't see it actually changing the world. The impact is, is muted in the world at, lo- at large. If you say that, if you say that Torah is empty and the impact of Torah is empty, well, look at what happened with with Lotan and his sister Timna. They were royalty. And they said, I prefer to be a concubine of the other side of this family. I just want any association with Abraham. Any association at all is preferable than to be in the halls of power. And that shows us how Abraham really did change the whole world. The impact of his Torah was not empty. Torah has a societal spillover effect. It's not empty. It's powerful for you. It's transformative for you. It's robust and full and bursting with value for you. But not even just for you. It spills over and it cascades outwardly and it changes everyone around you as evidenced by the fact that Timnah from royalty in a world of idolatry, an idolater herself, even she cannot deny the irresistible impact of Abraham. It says, I'll do whatever it takes to just be a part of this family. We are nearing the end of this cycle of the Torah. And we have two verses. After Moshe finishes the Song of Hazinu, he has some very powerful verses about about Torah and what it is. And he tells the nation, pay careful attention. Align your eyes, your ears, and your heart to what you're being commanded here with. Because it's not empty. It's all full. There's nothing in it that's filler. There's no popcorn filling for the things that matter. It's full of value. It's full of insight. It's full of life. And perhaps your eyes may be covered. You may need to pray to be able to see more insight and and depth and and wisdom in the Torah. And you know what? If you find something which is empty, it demands some humility. 
Because you have to say, you have to ascribe the emptiness to yourself, not to the Almighty. And if you find something which is empty, that is very revealing to you because now you have a target for what you need to remedy. That vexing question of what, what is my mission? This can be used as a means to discover it. And finally, the episode of Timnah's craving, this insatiable desire to join the family of Abraham, that is a testament that Abraham's door was not empty. It permeated his surroundings to such an extent that even the hardened pagans were so thoroughly moved by it. And they were willing to give up everything to just have any association with Abraham. It's a nice lesson. Don't underestimate Torah. It's not empty. It's full. It's not vacuous. It is replete. It is bursting. And how lucky are we? How fortunate are we to be able to study it each week? We like to end up the podcast with a question. And here's this week's question. Why is God rubbing salt on Moshe's wounds by highlighting the fact that he will be barred from entering the land? After the song of Hazinu, we have those two verses that we spent some time talking about in the podcast. And then verses 48, 49, Moshe is told to go up the mountain. Ascend Harnavo, Mount Navo, see the land, see the land that I am giving to the nation of Israel as an inheritance. Mo- Moshe is reminded here of the painful reality that the entire nation will all inherit this land and Moshe will not be part of them. Go see the land that I am giving to the sons of Israel, to your co-religionists, to your flock, and not to you. Why is God seemingly exacerbating Moshe's pain? Similarly, in the final verse of our parsha, Moshe again is told to go see the land from a distance. Vishama lo savo. You will not go there. You will not pass. You will not come to the land that I I'm giving to the nation of Israel. And this theme seems to repeat itself. Nechis Parsha, the final chapter, 34-4, God tells Moshe, this is the land, this is after he's already on top of the mountain, this is the land that I swore to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have shown it to you with your eyes. V'shamalosa avar. And there you will not pass. The Almighty is seemingly reinforcing again and again and again that Moshe is not going to go there. And then I remembered in the beginning of our book, chapter 3, verse 27 of Devarim, after Moshe had his salvo of prayers, 515 prayers, God says, no, you're not going to cross. Instead, go up the mountain and look at all directions, see with your eyes, you will not cross this Jordan. Now, in general, this whole subject seems to be full of mystery. 
You know, Moshe is told again and again, repeatedly, he's told to ascend the mountain. All the way back in Bamidbar, Numbers chapter 27, verses 12 and 13, Moshe is told to go see it. And now, Devarim, Deuteronomy 3, and now again, there's, uh, we know that there's nothing empty in Torah. There's some insight that we may be missing. But our particular question is, why did God repeatedly focus on the fact that Moshe will not cross the Jordan, whereas the nation will? It seems like he's rubbing salt on Moshe's wounds. Now, this is a deep question, and I don't know the answer. But whatever the answer is, it must be that this is for Moshe's benefit. It must be for Moshe's benefit to be told repeatedly that God's going to take the nation across. And Moshe is reminded again and again, you are not going with them. You're going to stay behind. You will not cross. That must be for Moshe's benefit. And the question that we want to consider, want to ruminate upon is, what exactly is that? I thank you so much for listening. This was really enjoyable. This was a fitting penultimate Parsha podcast for year seven with the help of the Almighty. Of course, my email just says, RabbiWalby.com, have an incredible Shabbos. Have an uplifting, transformational, liberating Yom Kippur. And please, God, we will talk again one more time for the Parsha podcast cycle number seven. Of course, we don't have a Shabbos that is Parsha's Vezos HaBracha, which is the final Parsha. That, of course, is read on, it's read on Simchas Torah. So it's like in, in, in two weeks from this upcoming Sunday. So I don't know. I, ho- I hope, please God, to once again speak about that, uh, par- about that Parsha. But it may not be next week. It may be the following week. Regardless, you take care. Send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.